Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss big, important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and bias. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie? Today, it is going great, Lawrence. It is a wonderful day. We have a great show about the gender pay gap. And I know that inequality is your area of expertise. So you are just very excited to get going into this. But I am also excited because not only do we have this terrific episode, it also is the week that the Emmy nominations came out. And I know that you are just as excited about this as I am because, Lawrence, you are a TV fanatic, just like me. Isn't (laughs) that true? You are. You are insane in the membrane, crazy about a series of tubes. This is legitimately the case. I had no idea the Emmys were this week. (laughs) So wait, you did not. Come on. You had to have watched Bridgerton. No. The Crown. No. The Mandalorian. No. Pose. What? Pose. No. Blackish. Cobra no. Kai. No. Hacks. No. no. Emily in Paris. Emily in Paris was terrible. No. And it still got nominated for something. <laughs> Here's the. Okay. First of all, you're missing. Did you out. watch missing, any of those? Uh, I watched almost all of them. <laughs> to be perfectly frank. Now, if everyone thinks that's why you should be a college professor, because you have so much time, you can watch all of those shows. That is not the case. Um, we are in this golden age of TV where particularly the streaming services will drop a season and that season is like six hours long and you can just knock that puppy out in a solid weekend when your kids are sleeping. And for me, you see, Lawrence, your kids are little. Your kids are sleeping at night. So you act like an adult. My kids are teenagers. So I act like a moron. So I watch TV from like six in the morning until eight in the morning. On the weekends? On the weekends. Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding? Hey, look, I go to bed really early at night. You do. Basically an 87-year-old. No shade to (laughs) 87-year-olds. I mean, look, we live life well. I mean, if if I'm trying to do business with you over text, like pod business with you over text, like once the shadows start growing long on the lawn, you know, you just drop off. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're like, I'm not going to hear back from her until, oh, God, it's 430 in the morning and she's up again. I just wanted to add, by the way, to, to what Allie said earlier. She said, you know, it's not like you can be a college professor and watch all these shows. I'll just qualify that a bit. You can't be a good college professor and watch all these shows. No, but you could be a great <laughs> college professor and watch all of these shows. <laughs> joking. Just I joking. I will say that there have there has just been some really good content with really um, wonderful actors and actresses and new voices that have been heard, especially in this past year. And um, when you watch these shows where you can get the perspective from someone else, and it's not your perspective, I'm saying you're learning something. And so, yeah. Ah, I love Oh, it. and I'm not like philosophically opposed to television. I just don't find a lot of time to fit it into the day. That's all. No, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of Subarus in our parking lots that have, um, you know, kill your TV bumper stickers. And I am very much, <laughs> I am on the those. record I'm not that if those. you try to kill your TV, I will throw my body <laughs> in front of your TV to save its life. <laughs> I will. I will save it. I will save you televisions of the world. I am here. I am your bodyguard. Um, I love TV. I, I've always loved TV, though. And, and She'll be the Kevin Costner to your Whitney Houston. I will. I will. I will carry it out <laughs> with both of my hands, singing to it very, very happily. Um there is, you know, not all of it is good. In fact, most of it is dreck because in truth, there are, I think in like in this last year, because there's now so much content out there with streaming services and cable and then broadcast just a lot. There were 450 something original shows produced. Oh, now, my obviously, goodness. yeah, that's insane. Did you that watch all insane. of them? No, I did Do you not. just tell no, your I DVR what not to record? <laughs> exactly. Like, don't. <laughs> please don't record The Real Housewives. Don't um, record Faulty Towers. 
<laughs> you know, in truth, I really only watch probably, and I mean this, probably only an hour, most of the time, less than an hour of TV a day. And, and that's the truth. I, um, be, I, I really don't have that much time to do it. But You're when I want to. I've seen, I've seen your curriculum, Vita. You're too productive. <laughs> <laughs> when I want to. I like myself some television. You like so, the stories. I, I do. I like, I like my programs. That's <laughs> exactly programs. right. I like my programs. Dr. Rick says not to say that. <laughs> now, remember, they're not programs. They're TV shows. You woke up early. No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as you've as you've watched, so you're clearly like a, a TV historian. In addition to all these other hats that you wear, uh, have you seen it? I mean, particularly when it comes to our topic today, have you seen TV change over time? And are you happy with the way that it's changing? You know, I thank you for asking. Yes, as a matter of fact, I have. Um, one of my favorite shows historically has been Murphy Brown. Um, Murphy Brown. Uh, which was aired in the late 1980s, mid to late 1980s, was about a um, a newswoman in D.C. And it was played by Candace Bergen. And she was this amazing sort of like baller of a lady. And she was, you know, getting all of the good interviews. And she interviewed presidents. And um, and I thought, that's me. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. Um, and then I realized, oh, wait, she doesn't have any children. And then she got pregnant. <laughs> So I was like, ha, you can have it all. Um, and then Dan Quill made fun of her uh, and said, no, this is terrible. We're all going to hell. And I thought, wait, do I want the vice president of the United States to make fun of me? I don't know. And then she made a lot of hay with uh, Dan Quill making fun of her. And it caused this huge culture battle. And I thought, yeah, OK, maybe I do want this. Maybe I I. I, maybe I, maybe she is my role model, um, even though Dan Quayle said that she was not a role model. But as it really turned out, the show had a wonderful episode starring, of all people, Barry Manilow, and it worked. It worked, Lawrence. And the, <laughs> the point was that you actually, as a woman, you can't have it all. Um, and that hours are hours and you have to make choices. And that was a really good lesson. And that was from TV. And so as I've watched women in the workplace, on television, grow and wrestle with these things. Um, it has been fascinating to watch our culture wrestle with the same kinds of dilemmas that our economists are, are going to be discussing today. You know, it's the choices that we make. Um, and it's also the burdens that women carry. And so I know that it's real easy to sort of point fingers and say, oh, you know, it's just one thing. But I think you and I both know that it's never just one thing. It's always a combination of things together. And it's always more complicated than it seems. Certainly. And when it comes to the topic of today's show, the gender pay gap, this is an issue that so many Americans talk about in a really inaccurate way, both left and right. So many liberals will make the claim that, women are making 80% of what men are making in the U.S. despite the fact that they're working in the same jobs. That's not actually true. That would suggest that it's all discrimination, right? But when people study the gender pay gap, what they're actually comparing is all full-time female workers to all full-time male workers. And yes, when you compare those two groups, uh, women are earning about 80 to 84% of what men are earning but that comparison doesn't take into account the fact that we're working in different industries, working in different jobs, have different uh, levels of labor force experience, etc. So when liberals say, you know, discrimination is the major factor, that's not actually true. Now, many conservatives also say really inaccurate things about the gender pay gap. One of the things that conservatives will often do is focus in on what I've just said about different occupations different industries, different labor force experience, and they'll say, see, it's all about choice. And that also is problematic because it doesn't acknowledge the fact that our choices are not completely free. We make choices within the context of our lives, within the context of the constraints of society, and women and men don't have the same types of choices available to them. So, you know, boiling it down just to choice is also not true. On this show, we are deeply committed to talking about the facts. We are deeply committed to talking about the weight of the evidence. So what does the research actually say? 
What the research says is that most of the gender pay gap can be explained by occupational segregation, so men and women working in different types of industries and in different jobs, and differences in labor force experience. And there's all sorts of um, individual level reasons why that's the case, but also structural level reasons why that's the case that we'll talk about with our guests today. About 40% of the gap is unexplained, and researchers believe that a big part of that uh, unexplained portion is discrimination. And we know that because there's been a whole variety of experimental studies that have shown that discrimination is a big issue. So again, most of the gap, occupational segregation, different jobs, different industries, different, different labor force experience for men and for women, and about 40% of the gender pay gap is unexplained. And we're pretty sure that discrimination is a big part of that. Now, if this is a topic that you are really interested in, and you want to look at the research that I've just cited, um, if you go to our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com, and go to the podcast archive, I'll link to some important studies there. Some of the most important work in this area is done by Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn. There's a great article called The Gender Pay Gap, Extent, Trends, and Explanations in the Journal of Economic Literature from 2017. And again, I'll link to that in the podcast archive. All right, Allie, well, let's bring on our two guests for today. We have two very distinguished economists joining us today who are going to help us all come to a deeper understanding of this issue. We have Heidi Hartman, who is President Emerita of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, which she founded in 1987. And she's also a distinguished economist in residence for gender and economic analysis at American University. We are also being joined by her colleague, Ariane Hegevish, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Women's Policy Research and a scholar in residence at American University. Allie and I are both very excited for this conversation coming up next. Heidi Hartman and Ariane Hagovich, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, thank you. Um, I'm going to begin with a general question, which is uh, really about definitions. So when discussing the gender pay gap in the United States, we think, and I'm sure you agree, it's, it's important to be precise with our definitions. So will you please define for us what we mean when we talk about the gender pay gap in the U.S.? Well, let me say that we do define it a particular way in the U.S., which is that we look only at uh, women and men who work full-time year-round when we're looking at annual earnings. But just to complicate things, we have two measures. The second measure is looking at wage and salary workers on a weekly basis. We, we take, if they're working full-time on a weekly basis, we take all the weekly uh, medians and average them for the year. And that's the median um, annual weekly wage ratio. That is often a little bit higher than the annual one, not always. Uh, the annual one includes self-employed. The weekly one includes only wage and salary workers. But in both cases, they're working full-time for weekly, not necessarily year-round, for annual year-round. And, and for women, that, that limits the comparison quite a bit. Uh, not that many, more than half of women are working year-round full-time. And so when we include part-time workers or uh, people who don't work at all, which, which you can do uh, to show how big the difference in what women and men take home from the labor market is, uh, then the ratio becomes much lower and the earnings gap much wider. So, so what is that pay gap? So um, at the moment, the, the pay gap for women who work full-time year-round compared to men who do the same is 82 cents on the dollar. So it's 18 cent wage gap. Um, and as Heidi said, 
if you include everyone who has any earnings um, in one year, in the calendar year, because women are less likely than men to work full time, the gap grows to um, women earning 73% um, of um, men's median earnings. Um, and then if you um, kind of do an even more realistic comparison over a 15-year period, um, the gap grows to slightly above half for anybody with earnings because women still tend to take more time out of the workforce than men um, to look after kids or, you know, elderly spouses or relatives. So um, there is a gap whichever way you measure it. Um, but how you measure it is quite important at pointing of the reasons for the differences. I'd like to add one thing, which is that we're when we give these ratios, we're comparing all men and women in the labor force to each other, no matter what job they work in. That means we're comparing truck drivers to secretaries, uh, judges to doctors, doctors to ditch diggers. Everybody's in that number. And um, when you often hear newscasters talk about it, they say, Oh, the wage gap for women and men in the same job is 18% this year. That's wrong. It is across the whole labor market. Why is that the measure? Well, that's a good question, but I like to think of it as essentially what are women and men taking home from the labor market? That's a good indicator of whether or not you can support yourself and your family. Um, the fact that you may have to work part-time because you have little children, you don't uh, can't find childcare. Uh, these are all factors in how you can support yourself and they affect, you know, the wages you take home from the labor market. So uh, I like that definition. A lot of people think the whole gap is discrimination. The women's movement has never said the whole gap is discrimination. Uh, economists, sociologists and others have, have looked at the amount of the gap that, that they think is due to discrimination, which is typically less than half. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the other half of the gap isn't important because public policies could affect the other half of the gap. What if we had free, really good childcare for everyone? Well, probably more women would go to work, they'd work more hours, and they might very well earn more. So all parts of the gap are susceptible to, I think, a policy intervention. And so it's important to know what the whole gap is, even though we don't necessarily see it all as discrimination of a particular employer against a particular worker. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I think somewhere around 60% of the gender pay gap in uh, Blau and Kahn's research can be attributed to both occupational segregation and differences in labor force experience. And the remaining 40% is unexplained. Big portion of that's probably discrimination. But I, I think it's important, and I do this when I talk about the gender pay gap in my inequality class, uh, I think it's important for us to not let folks get the wrong impression that that 60%, that's occupational segregation, that's labor force experience, that those things are just choices, right? Now, certainly a part of that is choice. A part of that is men and women making different choices about where they want to work, um, you know, how much they want to work, etc., but again, we, we need to recognize and understand that our choices are not completely free, that men and women face different pressures, different constraints, and that impacts their choices in ways that if those constraints weren't there, then they might make different choices, right? Yes. So, do you know, my, or I think our tag probably is very much, is it policy or is it choices? And policies really, really structure the choices we have. And, um, you know, as an economist, it's always other things being equal or assume that, but basically other things aren't equal. And so, you know, if you, when you think about it, when you start work, I mean, women already earn a little bit less, but with, before having kids, but starting work, you know, un as unencumbered, as men, but then, you know, when you have a kid, there's no paid leave, um, and you maybe catapulted out of your job. Or if you are married, your husband earns more than you, and it makes more in the sense in the family for you to go. And then you want to go back to work, but the childcare is so expensive that you, you all, it's low quality more often. You can't even choose the good one. So then 
you think, is it my child or is, you know, and then again, there's this thing, if you have a partner here and it's more than you and it's so the choices, the policies are really limiting um, the choices that, that women and men have, because it's the same with men, right? I mean, we've, during the um, pandemic, we've heard from a lot of men who kind of, you know, said also, we would also like to do more, but, or before even, you know, we would, but at the moment, the penalties on us are very large and we're the main breadwinner and, you know, we may never get into that. Maybe they should make those choices, but they don't necessarily. And then I think that the, the last element is a lot of our labor market is it's women's jobs or it's men's jobs. And women's jobs, I do a lot of work with women in technical jobs, women in construction. They are designed as if people don't have families. So, you know, they assume you are there. You can work if need be 12 hours a day. And then you have two hours commuting because your only reason in life is to earn money for your family. Um, and there are lots of guys who also can't cope with that. But those type of work practices push women out. So it's not, it's the choice is very constrained. And so really the, the task is to identify the constraints and to try and reduce them, if not eliminate them. Um, is there a place where um, just regular people can uh, track the gender pay gap or where we could find information that regular people can access and where we can understand what's going on? Um, so we have um, the Institute of po Women's Policy Research, where I work, um, publishes every six months uh, a fact sheet which has the wage gap going back to 1955 um, and also explains the different measures. So it's very available. You, right now, you can also find it at, at the Women's Bureau's website for the Department of Labor. Um, and I think if you Google gender wage gap, it probably comes up. But in the, the Institute for Women's Policy Research, which is um, www.iwpr.org, there you can find it also. And we will link to that also in the show notes. Thank you. That's a, that's a great resource. I think there are also some sources that um, might have more detail by occupation and, um, and industry uh, that are in the, you know, Things like Glassdoor, I don't know how those are doing, how many of them are by gender. Ariane, what about the uh, Elvilla Murphy's thing? Does she still have that up? She was doing uh, detailed pay gap things by occupation and industry by state, I think. I mean, we we also, IWPR also does detailed um, wage gap by industry, and we did it by state. We just updated the state one. Um, um, Evelyn Murphy, who's based in Massachusetts, I don't think she focuses on the wage gap um, that much. But there's, and also, I think, should say, when we do that, but there are also some other organizations who do that. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, basically the gender wage gap, the analysis is based on official government data, right? It's not us going and asking some neighbors or are doing our own rigorous study, but it's actual data collected, like the unemployment statistics or, you know, wage growth or whatever. So it's the Department of Labor and the Census Bureau who collect the data. And whether people think there is a wage gap, that it matters or it doesn't matter, everybody more or less agrees on the basic data and then the arguments start, whether it's discrimination or choice or what it is. And just a reminder to our listeners, if you go to utterlymoderatenetwork.com, go to the podcast archive, there's a really great article from Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn that helps you understand the pay gap and the different factors that are most responsible for that gap. Uh, their work, Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn, they, they really are just a fantastic source of work on the pay gap because they redo this, this paper that they produce uh, every 10 to 15 years. And this, I think, is at least their third version. And um, it's been very interesting to see how it's changed over time. 
The fact that most of it now they identify as occupational and industry segregation, that is new. In the early years when they first started, most of it was a difference in education and labor force experience between men and women. And that is much less true today. Women, on average, have more college education than men. Uh, so they have exceeded men. And, and that's what helped us catch up the wage gap uh, quickly in the 70s and 80s. And even 90s, we were catching up more than we are now in terms of women's wages versus men's. And uh, they recognize that. So now there's virtually no difference in formal schooling. And there's much less difference even in labor market experience than there was. Every uh, 10, 15 years, 20 years, when you look at it, you see more and more women working. So I like to say women are voting with their feet. Uh, they believe that getting into the labor market and you know staying there most of their lives is the better choice. And they are preparing themselves through education and other career preparation. And when we've, we've seen how, how many women... Um, single moms, black and Hispanic single moms going to college, uh, doing everything they can to get that human capital that they know they're going to need for a lifetime. And primarily motivated in that case by doing well for their children, by being able to give their children a, a better standard of living. So, um, you know, it has changed quite a lot in, um, in my lifetime, looking at, looking at how the data have changed. So let's talk about differences in labor force experience, which explains a portion of the gap. Um, so men and women have different labor force experience. Again, it's not a huge explanation for the gap, but it's a part of it. And I specifically want to focus on, and, and you both have uh, mentioned a few policies that um, would help, but I, I want to focus on some policies that would make this work-life balance easier for men and women expand choices for women and, and help to attack the gap some more. Um, one is, and I was, hope both of you could expand upon this, you know, compared to other OECD countries, family leave policies in the U.S. are, are really pretty atrocious, both in terms of what is federally guaranteed, which is nothing in terms of uh, how much paid time you're going to get off. You're guaranteed time off, of course, but not paid time off. And then if you look at how like what percentage of your wage is replaced by policies in other OECD countries? There's wide variation, but at least there's some substantial portion that is is replaced, right? So, could you talk about? We'll talk about childcare in a moment, but could you talk about um, paid leave and comparatively how we we do compared to other countries and and how that contributes to this problem? Basically, in the United States. Paid leave is voluntary most of the time, voluntary on the part of the employer. We do have a um, federal policy to provide unpaid leave up to 12 weeks, but even that uh, is covers only half the labor force, not much more than half the labor force. And when we look at young women who are, you know, typically the ones who have uh, children, let's define young as under 40 even, uh, they are less covered because they're more likely to work in small firms. Uh, when you come out of the, you know, college or high school, you very often will be disproportionately in smaller firms who won't be covered. The, the size is pretty big. You have to have uh, 50 employers, which is a, a pretty, pretty good size for an employer in this country. So uh, and that's the Family and Medical Leave Act that you're referring to. Yeah, the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993. And it's now 2021. And we haven't had any new uh, legislation yet on family leave. When that act was passed, most of the advocacy groups working for that thought it would be very quickly before we got paid leave. We're not yet have paid leave on the national level, although, of course, many of the Democratic candidates ran on that. Uh, even President Trump mentioned he would do something on paid leave if he were reelected. Uh, but so far, it, has, it hasn't happened. What we have instead is some state policies. So uh, we have about eight states now in the District of Columbia that do require uh, paid leave. These are mandatory systems. Employers and workers, or one or the other, contribute to it. It's much like Social Security in that regard. And um, you do get paid uh, for the amount of time that you're out of work, but it's limited. It could be four weeks, it could be six weeks, it could be 12 weeks, uh, depending on the state. And the amount you get back of your wages is also limited, typically around two-thirds. It can be as high as 80, 90%. I believe there's one state that will have 100% for low-wage workers. Um, 
So that's not very many of the states. It's, it's some of the big states. It's California, New York, New York, New Jersey. The others are a bit smaller, Rhode Island, Washington, D.C., Washington State, Oregon, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut. I may be forgetting a few because there have been, you know, changes. And it's great to see that momentum and that happening. But that's a pretty slow way to get to all 50 states. And the states have to have, you know, um, a certain kind of politics to get that far. And we have many states that are simply not interested so unless we get a national law, we're, we're always going to be behind. The other interesting thing is how long some of these other countries provide leave, some of them up to a year, even more than a year, and, and very often at at least 50% of pay. So for that long-term leave and much higher share of pay for the shorter-term leave, the, the first weeks will be at a higher rate, and then the rate might fall if you want to take more weeks off. Uh, so, you know, it's a very different idea that the society as a whole supports parents having children. And uh, they recognize that you should take some time off and that, and that, you know, it should be supported if you do. So it would be great to have that sense here. And, you know, we can always hope that that idea that the community is responsible uh, for the well-being of the children will, will catch on a little more here. I did hear somebody say once that parents spending time with young children was important for the children, but maybe they were wrong. I don't know. <laughs> But let's let's get to a second policy that you both alluded to earlier, which is, um, you know, there there is childcare in the U.S., but if you look at the stock of high quality childcare that's also affordable, that's where you start to see a problem, right? So, how might we address the stock of high quality, affordable childcare, and would that matter for the pay gap? In a way, it, it, I think it's similar to what Heidi says. It's something where you need public policies. You know, child care is, you cannot invent, well, maybe you can, but you wouldn't want to have a machine or a robot <laughs> produce this child care and can deal with 20 children, one robot. Like the robot that goes around the grocery store on the wheels. Yeah, that wouldn't be, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, a lot of fun trying to outsmart that robot. <laughs> Maybe that's like an early STEM program, <laughs> right? This is how we this is how we get more kids interested in STEM. We have Marty go. the robot from Giant as our daycare <laughs> provider. How can we reprogram it to give us Smarties? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that means, like school, you need public funding. You need a base of public funding, and um, it needs more public investment. And there's a very good study which says, okay, let's assume we provide um, universal child care uh, for, for every, I think it's even universal care for every child from um, three months onwards or from birth onwards you know, until they go to school and then have universal care. And it's not cheap. It was about 2% of GDP. But what was really interesting that in terms of generating growth um, and jobs and quality jobs, because the system included having decent jobs for childcare workers, right? Not, not now earning less than the minimum wage. Um, so, and that would generate as many jobs for women as it did for men because you need construction and then you have a multiplier effect and you get more money into households pockets and they spend it locally. So it, it was a very economically, very prudent, um, policy. And of course, you also get the long-term improvements because if kids have quality childcare access, they often do better as adults. But I think the problem is it needs taxes. It needs public commitment and resources. Um, and, I, you know, I think the discussion at the moment, I think it's really encouraging, um, maybe because of the horror of COVID, that we have really seen how important care is, child care and elder care. Um, and, of course, it's in, in the current administration. Um, and you can see also from a pure research um, position, you know, the states, when states started to introduce kindergarten, universal kindergarten, um, women's labor force participation and women's earnings went up. In, in Quebec, when they started to offer universal childcare, again, women's earnings rose. More women worked and their earnings went up. 
So there's a very clear connection. I would like to know how the wage gap has changed over time and narrowed over time. And at the same time, I feel like when I was in college, which was not a short time ago, um, it was the same. I mean, I remember being in college, being feeling very outraged in the late 1980s, you know, that it was at 81%. Um, and so now, you know, we're at 82%. And I still feel high dudgeon, but it can't be Ronald Reagan's fault because he's not president anymore. So how is it how has it shifted over time? And can you just explain how those shifts have occurred? Well, I would say that um, it did it did decrease faster the wage gap before um, 2000 than it has since 2000. There, there's no question about that. And I think the main reason for the catch up in the earlier years was women getting more uh, education than they had in the past and staying in the labor market more and getting more labor market experience. I think once you get to the point where we are at now, where, you know, most of the difference can be explained by industry and occupational segregation, those are harder to attack, as, as we've been discussing. Um, it's uh, something that, you know, there, there's, there is a lot involved in the education system in terms of what, what uh, students major in, even in high school, who takes the shop class, who takes uh, the general business course where you learn to type, uh, and in college as well, who majors in education, who majors in engineering. And so there's, you know, a, kind of a pipeline from our education into these sectors of the labor market. And uh, the sectors that women work in tend to pay less. You know, we said women's educational attainment, women are more likely to have hold education than men. And this has grown also, continued to happen in the 2000s and the 2010s when the wage gap has really not moved a lot. So, you know, when you include education in the wage gap, the wage gap gets much bigger if you only country, um, con compare women and men with um, bachelor's degrees or so. And that really also hits... Um, Black women and Hispanic women, um, you know, and it's because we undervalue social work, care work, teaching, schools, you know, and then you get into, again, this social wage issue. Even though not all of those jobs are in the public sector, they are kind of seen more as the public sector field. Um, and I think the other issue has happened, as Heidi has mentioned, there has been pressure on large firms to maybe do a bit more about um, addressing different valuations of jobs, men's and women's jobs. But, you know, if you look at Microsoft or, or even the Hilton Corporation, how many people they directly employ, they basically subcontracted a lot of jobs, catering, cleaning into a lower wage labor market where you have fewer comparators and where people just, you know, you just compete against each other on labor wages. Um, and also there are many fewer opportunities to make it from, say, you know, this old thing from male, male sorter to CEO that, that doesn't exist anymore. So I think, as Heidi says, we really need to put up the bottom of the labor market, minimum wage, minimum hours, issues around how many hours you can get and when you work, scheduling, all those, and improve um, how we pay people in, in, in the public care sector, education and care. And that will might unblock this kind of slow movement in, in closing the wage gap. So, Ariane, I think you you kind of alluded to this, and, and Heidi, I think you did as well, that there are differences in how different groups experience the wage gap. And this is the case with any measure of, of societal well-being, right? So you have this sort of national number, which tells you how the country is doing overall. But when you start looking at different demographics, um, different groups can have wildly different experiences. So there are three groups in particular I want to talk about, but we can certainly expand that to more if you would like. Um, but I want to talk about race and ethnicity, family structure, so single mothers in particular, and then also age. So let's let's start with race and ethnicity. So the wage gap is one thing nationally, 
But when you start pulling out these different groups, it's very different, right? Um, it is. So just, just on this, going back to where we started with the um, everybody who works full time year round, um, what, what we, you know, the wage gap is a hook to show inequality. So the, the way, the convention in a way is that we compare, um, say, black women to um, non-Hispanic white men because they are firstly still the majority, but they also have the best access to jobs, right? So if you look at that wage gap, um, that is just 63 cents um, per dollar for black women and for Hispanic women, 55 cents per dollar. Um, but also we've talked about um, the slow narrowing of the wage gap for all women compared to all men. Um, when you look at black women um, compared to white men, there is no slowing, right? If you look at progress from the mid 80s um, and project that into the future, when black women would catch up with white men's earnings, um, it will be over 110 years. And for Hispanic women, it will be um, you know over 200 years. So really very big earnings differences. And that is, you know, of course, um, part of this is education um, and um, access to jobs. But um, black women, for example, are catching up faster on education than white men and the wage gap is getting wider. So what it is, is basically people who are, more likely to work in the service sector, in um, low-wage care jobs, in the care sector, women, black women, Hispanic women, um, earn less than if you work in finance and in industry. And, um, you know, what it means to experience this is greater poverty, no ability to save, no ability to invest in your kids or buy them, um, soccer classes. I'm German, so soccer matters. <laughs> um, you know, so how you experience this is like misery, right? Um, and it also, I mean, the other issue is increasingly what we're having is it's, you've got industry and, and occupational segregation, but you have the firms that pay the best. And then you have other firms in the same sector. And that is another um, difference in earnings and black women are more likely to work in the other firms in the sector or is, you know, without permanent jobs and white men are more likely to be in the best sectors. So, um, it, it is a real, especially because it's not improving. I think it's, it's a real challenge policy wise and I guess attitude wise. And I would say by family structure, um, we know that when we look at income, um, the income of female-headed families with children is the lowest, uh, and um, married couples do better, partly because they have two earners, partly because they have a higher-earning male. Not all men do earn more than their wives. In fact, you know, something like 25% of wives are earning more than their husbands per hour, but not necessarily on an annual basis. It, it would appear that there is an ideological element here which may you know, cause women to restrict their hours so that even though they could earn more than their husbands, they choose not to, choose not to. Um, but uh, definitely the female-headed families are disproportionately minority, and they do have a, a hard time finding a job because they have more constraints. It has to be a job where they alone can take care of their kids, get their kids where they need to go, get themselves where they need to go for the job, and you know, make it all work. Um, possibly rearranging two or three different types of childcare during the day, you know, before school care at school, a neighborhood uh, person to take your kids after school, whatever, perhaps someone to take your kids in one direction while you're going in the other direction. So it's not surprising that because of the constraints you feel as a single parent, you don't have as much choice, um, even as other women, and, and certainly not as most men, in um, in finding a job that you can actually do. So that's one reason why they also tend to have higher unemployment and to earn less. And age is a very different one, a uh, very interesting one for men and women, because what we see when we look at the uh, wages of women over time and the wages of uh, men over time, uh, 
is uh, over their lifetimes is that men's wages rise to a later age. You know, up till 50 or 55, their wages are still going up. Women tend to plateau at about 40, age 40, and then go up on average after that. And again, this is because they are much more in uh, dead-end, low-wage jobs. Uh, we, we found in the study that Ariane mentioned that was done by IWPR as well, where we looked at uh, 15-year periods of women and men in the labor market using a, a panel study following the same men and women in the labor market. We found that um, those that were consistently in low-wage jobs were, in, in the first study, 90% female, and in the second study, about 75% female. So those who don't get out of the low-wage jobs over a 15-year period are disproportionately female. And so that affects that age earning profile. And that just means that, you know, you, you, you can't do as well over your lifetime in terms of providing for your children or saving for retirement. Um, so the, those age differences are, are interesting and very serious as well. So... Can you both give us um, a wish list, a Christmas list, a if you could register for policies that you think would be fantastic? Um, what would you What would you choose? Why are they the best? And um, are you optimistic about change for the future? Well, I guess um, following in the footsteps of one of my mentors, Barbara Bergman, the late Barbara Bergman, a well known economist, I, I would choose childcare because it's very expensive. And uh, it would have, you know, a, at least a two-generation effect. It would help the parents so much to not have to pay for child care, at least to not pay an enormous sum for it. And to have high-quality child care would, of course, help the, the children. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just something that, you know, it would be so important uh, for our nation. I, I, would go, <laughs> I would go with that one first, but it's a tough choice. And then secondly, I would choose comparable worth to, to get that on the table. And, and to really have employers be responsible for evaluating what goes on in jobs and for trying to pay those jobs uh, equally, equitably, according to the skills uh, and working conditions and responsibility and so on that, that the jobs have. Um, so I would add to, to Heidi's um, elder care because that is becoming so much more important and I think there are good policies out there. So you, you need better access to well-paid care, right? Caregiver's job pay needs to go up, but also it needs to be more easily available. And I think the breaks you have when you look after kids, it's predictable when you look after somebody who is aging or has a health crisis, it's much more sudden. So you need different type of job protected leave, but elder care is one. But then, and the mine more narrowly on equal pay, the one I feel at the moment is kind of really doing something to change people's awareness um, is to have to, as com large companies, having to publish, pub publish their overall wage gap between all women and all men and um, so that you also get full-time, part-time different hours include that by race and ethnicity. And I think they've just passed a similar a law like that in Canada. And then also, you know, other measures are what's the proportion of women in the top 25 earners um, of the company? And they have a law like that in the UK. It includes some companies like Starbucks or large banks who operate in the UK have flipped it over to also use it in the US. And it really highlights different hours, different undervaluation of women's work, but also women's lower share of management jobs. So I think it's a, an awareness building tool that complements the way we do the overall um, wage gap. And then the last one is better unionization, make it easier for unions to organize. Now, uh, academics like politicians, we're very good at reframing questions to fit our research agenda and the direction we want to go. And I noticed that neither of you told us whether you were optimistic or not. I so. noticed that as well. <laughs> You're gonna, so, we're not going to let you off the hook. Yeah. Uh, how are you feeling? Give us your, your mood at the moment. Well, I remain optimistic. I, I think this is the first uh, presidential campaign in my life where both candidates said they would do something about paid family leave, both of the final candidates, that is. 
Um, and uh, again, almost all the Democratic candidates said they would do a lot on uh, especially child care, but also elder care. And we see these plans now in um, the parts of the President Biden's infrastructure plan that haven't yet passed, but they are there. And um, I also think that uh, the way that he has said to pay for them is quite popular and pulls very well. Uh, getting corporations to pay, getting higher income people to pay is very popular. And all of these plans are very popular. They want the child care, they want the paid family leave, they want the elder care. I've certainly heard a lot of commentators say that it's very, very difficult for people in Congress to vote against what people really want. So that makes me somewhat optimistic at, at this turn of events. Um, and, and just seeing these issues on the public agenda in a way that they have never been before, certainly it was helped by the pandemic. Uh, but I think the candidates were actually talking about those issues before the pandemic started, uh, many of the candidates. So, um, you know, there is a change. I think, you know, for years and years, women did the double job and they put up with it and then they started complaining, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like sexual harassment or domestic violence. Those issues were silent for generations. And at some point they became visible and loud. First domestic violence, then sexual harassment, now care. And it, it definitely changes the political dynamic when, when uh, people just say, I'm not putting up with it anymore. Mm -hmm. I, perfectly said. Um, and I, I'm also slightly optimistic because coming out of the pen, I know I'm much less typically. <laughs> I'm never, I'm always the optimist. You should see Heidi's optimist. face. She's very surprised. <laughs> I know. And happy. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> we have two happy economists. I feel like we should call someone. Yeah, this is amazing. Get a screen grab. <laughs> this is a happy German. That's that's even more rare. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> okay, we've got to call somebody. <laughs> but it's because the pandemic has made the cost and the extent of inequities so clear for women around childcare, around race around undervaluing, you know, care work, um, around the impact of inequality. And I think there's a people are fed up and want change. Um, and so, you know, that feeds into the fact that we have the solutions and the politicians actually committed to some of those solutions. So I do think there will be pressure for change. And last but not least, I think um, you know, we're, we're always focusing on women, um, but I do think men, there's also more pressure coming from men, hopefully, more pressure on men <laughs> to do more care work, but also more pressure from men that they want to be more equally involved. So, yeah, quietly optimistic. <laughs> What's well, a good great uh, place to end quick yeah. before before everybody changes their minds and decides <laughs> yeah. no no wait it's it's not actually good news um thank you both so much this has just been wonderfully informative and an important topic to cover so thank you for your time and your expertise it was a lot of fun it was it's always fun to do things with Ariane and great to meet the two of you and thank you for inviting us likewise yes thank you both for joining us today and uh, before we go, we've actually talked a lot about the really important research in this area from Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn. I actually conducted an interview with Francine Blau in 2020, and I'd love to play you just a few highlights from that interview now. Gender differences in occupations and industries are the major uh, factor uh, accounting for uh, differences in wages between men and women. Specifically, uh, together they account for about half uh, the gender uh, pay gap. So what do I mean by uh, gender differences in occupations and industries? Well, even though there's been an enormous amount of progress made in narrowing gender differences in occupations, women tend to be concentrated in lower paying uh, jobs. So Let's just take the professional category as an example. Uh, among professional workers, women are likely to be in relatively lower paying jobs as um, elementary and to some extent high school teachers, 
Whereas men would be more likely to be in higher paying jobs like uh, lawyer or, or doctor. Now, having said that, I want to say that women have made great strides in entering uh, those higher paying occupations, but still um, there is a gender difference. And another uh, one that's important is women tend to be more concentrated in lower paying service occupations, like childcare worker, for example. So uh, that's one big chunk of the difference. Now, another uh, factor that's important is uh, labor market experience. So um, traditionally, and to a lesser extent today, but traditionally, uh, women would uh, move in and out of the labor force to a greater extent than men did when they had uh, children or in response to family responsibilities. Again, those differences have really narrowed, but still uh, men tend to have more labor market experience than women. And that accounts for a small but noticeable part of the difference, uh, say about 14%. I, I would like to point out that if we examine this uh, uh, 20 years ago, uh, gender differences in experience would play a much larger role than they do today, but they still are a factor. After our extensive um, statistical analysis, uh, there is a portion of the gap that we simply can't explain with our measured characteristics, and uh, actually that accounts for about 38% of the gender pay gap. And that raises the question, well, what does that stand for? Um, and one possible ex uh, uh, interpretation of what it stands for, and I think a reasonable one, is uh, discrimination. In other words, after we've controlled for gender differences and qualifications, women still earn less, and we could attribute that portion to discrimination. And in addition to um, the type of analyses that uh, Lawrence Kahn and I have done that I've summarized here, there's fascinating evidence uh, of um, what we call experimental evidence, where, for example, they send resumes to uh, a, a potential employers and see what the response is. And one uh, fascinating study uh, found that if they indicated in the resume that the person was a parent, it had a very negative effect on the willingness uh, to uh, call the person back. And, and schedule an interview. But if they indicated that for men, there was no negative response. So that's clearly, the, otherwise the uh, resumes of the individuals were matched to be of equal quality. And that's one of many pieces of uh, evidence that strongly suggests there is some discrimination. We have to make it as easy as we possibly can for women and men increasingly to combine work and family. So. Uh, what's sometimes called family-friendly policies are very important. And in this area, the U.S. tends to lag relative to the rest of the world. So uh, we're the only advanced, uh, uh, economically advanced nation that does not have paid parental leave, for example. Our parental leave is much shorter than is available elsewhere. And again, uh, it, is, it is not paid. Uh, we tend to do less in the childcare arena than other countries. So I think that we have two broad dimensions to address. On the one hand, the discrimination dimension. On the other hand, what economists tend to call the supply side. Childcare is just win-win from both dimensions. It, it provides, uh, uh, it attracts uh, and enables women to remain in the labor force. And let me say that childcare greater public uh, 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 support for pre-K programs, things of that sort, we're investing in the next generation, which is a wonderful thing in and of itself. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails.
close to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Till we meet again Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.